morality. I do believe that our concept of morality, that what it's basically been is the embodiment of our recognition as a species, that this is not a very smart way for us to move forward. Because every single time we have these violent conflicts, we really risk eliminating some of the most valuable members of our community. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, 4th of December, 2017. And today we're going to be talking to a guest that you should know by now because I've been on his show a couple of times, but it's the first time he's been on The Corbett Report. I'm talking about Vin Armani, who has his fingers in a number of pies. He is not only the host of the appropriately entitled Vin Armani Show via the auspices of ActivistPost.com, and he's not only a contributor to the always interesting CounterMarkets newsletter at CounterMarkets.com, but he is also the author of a brand new or relatively new book called Self-Ownership, The Foundation of Property and Morality. And more information on that book, including how you can purchase it, is available at VinArmani.com. Vin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. James, thank you for having me on. A total honor. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate you uh, being here to talk about an important subject. But before we get into today's conversation, which is going to be about your book, I think it's uh, there's an interesting point of accord between us that we should bring to the viewer's attention. Not only do we share our rugged, manly, hairless good looks, but we also share a uh, an interesting thing that has happened on YouTube uh, in recent weeks. As my viewers will know by now, uh, my recent video on the normalization of robot citizenship and robot human personhood uh, was soft-censored on YouTube, age-restricted. You now have to be logged in and over 18 to watch it on YouTube. And just for the record, there are ways around that. Um, uh, you can go via HookTube, and there was another site that I heard about where you can actually bypass the age restrictions without having to log in and give your details to GooTube. So I'll put the links for that in the show notes. But I was soft-censored on that issue. Vin, I understand you were hard-censored on that uh, issue. In fact, the activist post channel got taken off of YouTube entirely? Yeah, this was a a really weird situation that, honestly, what happened to you gave a lot of clarity to our situation what for the show had been my my show's just just a little over a year old weekly and so every week activist post on the activist post youtube channel would take clips from my show usually it would be the interview and maybe one or two clips of news that we would do and they would stick them up as separate segments i had the entire show uh, on my youtube channel we one day all of a sudden, Activist Post channel is completely terminated. They asked for a review. YouTube said, we're not going to do a review. They said it was violation of community guidelines. There had been no strikes, no demonetization, no nothing. Um, and the last video that had been posted up, we were shocked that this – initially we were like, wow, of all the videos. But it was a video that – Um, was a commentary that I was making on an article that had been written by Waking Times, uh, where in it, the author was talking about sex robots and how sex robots were an extension of the objectification of women. And in it, she had made some statements that I, I, you know, it went to the heart of my book, as a matter of fact, where one of them was that she said, these are robots that you can dress up, whatever the things were, and you can rape she said. And my comment was, I think that we're starting to get into some very dangerous territory if we're going to say that you can rape an inanimate object. Uh, We're starting to get into this is a very, which is exactly what it was that you were saying. And I was saying, uh, my my general thesis of this, this, this little section was, this is not an extension of the objectification of women. This is the subjectification of objects. And then the Sophia the Robot thing happened. But when this initially, when we were initially terminated, you would think without this additional background, this is before Sophia, this is before uh, the things that happened with you. It was shocking to us because I was like, of all the things that I've done on the show, this seems to be the least like controversial. How is how is anything that I said controversial? And yet. Boom, down it goes. But James, you know, something interesting that quite a few people have brought up, and it's something that I thought at the time, uh, being the science fiction fan that I am, particularly of William Gibson, 
you know, it's the algorithms that flag these things. And we are talking about if anybody would be offended by any of the things that we said, well, it would be a robot. And, you know, like in uh, in um, Neuromancer, William Gibson's sort of sort of masterpiece where the word cyberspace is used for the first time. The entire premise of that book is that an AI gains sentience and starts directing the people around it to do things and nobody's the wiser. So yeah. I don't well, know. I was uh, I was half jokingly on Twitter uh, telling someone uh, who who suggested that uh, that uh, oh no those Sophia and that that algorithm are just good friends stop spreading spreading rumors but yeah uh, I think I think you're onto something but I mean Occam's razor I used the word sex robot in the description of that video maybe they just flag that term as oh maybe that's going to be inappropriate but. But there are other sex robot videos that are up on YouTube not age-restricted. So why is mine age-restricted? Why was did yours result in the entire termination of an entire channel? It's insane. Exactly. That's absolutely crazy. Very, very strange. And uh, a sign that we must be talking about something that's important, right? Agreed. Um, Agreed. Well, it is important because, it, as you say, this does, in a way, go to the heart of your book and the meaning of your book. Again, self-ownership. The Foundation of Property and Morality. Some pretty important philosophical concepts that have some real-world implications, as we are starting to see with personhood of robots. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of this, I actually wanted to talk about the way that I acquired this book. Because it wasn't going to Amazon.com and spending filthy fiat. It was via VinArmani.com, and it was via crypto. In fact... I don't remember which crypto I used to purchase it, um, but it was one that I hadn't actually used before. So it was nice to actually have, hey, I can actually spend some of this crypto. Uh, what a what an incredible idea. I think it was Dash or Litecoin or something like that. Um, tell us about that aspect of this book. Well, my, uh, my first book, Dow of the Gigolo, is available on Amazon. And initially I had, when I first was putting this book out, I... Initially, it said, oh, I'm just going to put it on Amazon as well. I'm going to do the audiobook on Audible and, and, you know, have it for Kindle, just as I had done my, my past book. But um, so two things. The first is I'm a huge cryptocurrency advocate, and I do believe practice what you, what you preach. And in this case, I believe that the most important thing, and I'm now embroiled in this sort of Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash versus uh, legacy Bitcoin debate, and, you know, my, I do believe that as an agorist, like if we're going to change the world, cryptocurrency is one of the big ways, but it's got to flow. We actually have to make these exchanges. So I decided while I was waiting for the audiobook to finish being produced, since I wanted to put it all out at the same time, that I would do some initial advanced copies and just to make them available to fans and that I would do it by cryptocurrency. I thought, you know, it works with the book. It works with sort of my brand. It works with the show. It it, it just had it felt very coherent. And so I started. And like you say, I just kept getting people saying, hey, this is my first cryptocurrency purchase ever, or this is my first time using this particular crypto, or this is the reason that I even bought Bitcoin was to be able to do this. And I saw it being able to onboard a whole bunch of people. And I said, okay, well, then this is this is bigger than than just doing some advanced copies. And, you know, the ability to have complete control over the process. Also, the fact that, you know, the amount of money that I make off each book, my profit margins for the book are fantastic. I mean, my payment processor, which is coinpayments.net, they take half a percent. Uh, With Amazon, I was losing about 50%. So as you know. So... Yeah, it's it's been all around amazing. So I've, I'm doing both the book, the audio book, and the um, PDF copy, all with cryptocurrency. And the audio book, the digital side, the audio book and the PDF are hosted on IPFS. So it's like, it's got it all covered. It's The book is about uh, the idea of, of moving forward and what we could possibly be moving into. And so, th- th- you know, there's a manifestation of it. I feel it's, it's a, it's a larger project and I feel very proud that, that it's there. 
Absolutely. And it is something to be proud of because I couldn't agree with you more that the real value of Bitcoin, sometimes people argue that, oh, the value of crypto is in the electricity that's used to run the algorithms that secure the network or whatever. No, I don't think so. It's in the use value. And if there is no use value, then there is really no value to this. So um, absolutely, we have to create the economy around it by actually selling things into the economy with crypto. So you have not only solidified my already, I had a resolution that when I put out my book, which will be coming out sometime in the next, uh, well, I'm not even going to say, <laughs> sometime in the future, uh, I am going, and of course not going to use Amazon. It's not going to be available for sale on Amazon. It's going to be available for sale through CorbettReport.com directly. But secondarily, uh, you've also encouraged me to to resolve, of course, why don't I give a 50% discount on everything, my DVDs, my subscription and everything, if you pay via crypto. And uh, any sort of crypto, just get in touch with me and just say what, what it is and I'll send you a wallet address. Um, that's Perfect. the way to do it. So mm-hmm. from this point forward, 50% crypto discount on anything from corporatereport.com. Awesome. So thank you for awesome. that and for inspiring me for that. But let's, let's get into the, the ideas of self-ownership. Okay. The foundation of property morality is a pretty ambitious uh, subhead there. Um, tell us... Tell us the, give us the elevator pitch. What is, what is your thesis here? Well, I I guess what I will say is what I, the, the space that I think that this particular book occupies is, um, you know, as I, well, I'll start, I'll start maybe like this, you know, this is human action. This is socialism. Ludwig von Mises, big, huge tomes here. And as well, we've got the other Austrian economists. And I think that right now that makes up when we talk about sort of uh, anarcho-capitalists or even the, the libertarian movement as a whole, the people who are sort of activists on that side, so much of it is economics. I mean, we're sitting here, we're talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So much of it is economics. So much of it is informed by Austrian economics. The, the debates that are going on online, those are the principles that people are drawing from. And it's fundamentally about property rights. And in this book, so the elevator pitch is, what is ownership? In all of my reading of the Austrian economists, this is the one thing that I found missing, was they get into a discussion of of property. And I mean, this is not just Austrian economists, but we could go back to, to Locke even. You get into a discussion of property, and it's fundamentally that which is owned by an individual. But what is ownership? And I really was looking to see, has somebody tackled this question before? Has somebody put this in a very succinct uh, manner? And have they gone from first principles, something that everybody would find to be self-evident and say, what is ownership? What can be owned? What constitutes a valid ownership claim? Because then you can start to eliminate a lot of problems that are associated with property. Do we know that all of the things that we have conflicts when it comes to property over that they can even be owned in the first place? Do we even know that we're talking about valid claims? So that was that was what I found missing. And then as I dove deeper into it, um, really it came the things that came up was an examination of, of what is even violence, uh, defining that. And why not violence? Why not violent coercion? Like, where does it come from? How did it get into the mix? What does it represent in terms of our interactions with one another? And, and why, up until this point, have we organized our systems uh, with a foundation of coercive violence, which is the state? So if we're going to move beyond the state, if we're going to try to peacefully uh, come into a, a stateless society. I think that these are some things that we need to start looking at. So I, I, I feel like I've put them in a, in a very readable format. And I think, I think that I've pretty much nailed it in terms of at least a, a solid foundation. I, I certainly hope that there is critique and criticism because I think that there's a lot that can be evolved out of it. But it's it's some, now there's a movement. Now it's gone beyond academic. It's in a place where uh, I think the average person wants to start embracing these ideals. And we actually can. I mean, we're having the discussion now that it's like practical. We need to start making these moves. 
I'm glad that you're addressing this because to me, this really is the absolute bedrock, the foundation of any political system or lack of system or or any sort of social organization is the question of property and ownership. That's what it always comes down to at base, even if we don't understand that. So as you say, this goes beyond academia. This goes right into the heart of everyday lived experience. And the way I conceive this as working in the statist world is that the essentially we live in a world where governments claim ownership over everything within their geographical territory, including you and your labor and what happens. And they allow you to keep some of it. They'll take some of it because you owe them for living in their on their property, essentially. We are all serfs on the status plantation. That's the way I, I see this being enacted in our world as it exists currently. First of all, is that accurate? And second of all, what does a world of self-ownership look like then? I, I actually think it's very accurate. And it's it goes... See, this is when I started to... exist Because the, um, the sort of libertarian slogan, right, that is... The, the non-aggression principle, which actually isn't a, a principle, but we'll get to that. It's, it's, a, it's a preference, and it's a behavioral preference, right? Non-aggression. It's not a principle. A, pr- a principle is a if-then idea, and it's, not, it's an is as opposed to an ought, right? But the, the idea of don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Um, this hurting people ideal. I, I really, as I started to delve into this, and, and I was struck by the exact same idea that you just brought up, is the idea that we're dealing with the state. What the hell is ownership then anyway, if it's just might makes right? And so dealing with, you know, okay, we want a non-aggression principle. We, we are saying that violence is bad, but why is violence bad? This is the question. So in looking at violence, you know, I said, okay, here we are. In, we have we're talking about intraspecies violence at this point. Uh, we're talking about between two two members of the same species violence. We're not talking about sort of predation and defense, you know, of uh, one animal of one species hunting an animal of another species. But intraspecies violence. The interesting thing about it is that some of the species, some of them that are the most evolved in terms of intraspecies violence happen to be herbivores. So you look at uh, sheep, rams, uh, I talk about giraffes, you know, a- any of the horned animals, but I, I think bighorn sheep in particular, they're very interesting to me. There's a, a wild, uh, I don't know, what are they called, herd that's just in the mountains, just right above where our, our studio is, and they come down into this park, and the rams will actually go at it, and you can hear it from miles away. Find it I find it fascinating. Fundamentally, we're talking about a, a conflicting ownership claim in that case, right? We might call it territory. It's not really that. It's the the capability to be able to, it's abstract, to be able to mate with the females around. And so nature has created this dispute mechanism. And she's even evolved these literal biological structures and tons of different species to settle claim conflicts, ownership claims. It's mine. No, it's mine. Boom, 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 until one either is dead or gives up, and now there's only one claimant. And you carry that through, and fundamentally, that's what the state is as well. That the state is, it initially started out, you know, you would have a king, and the only reason the king was on the throne was because he was the toughest guy around, and everybody was scared to dethrone him. But if someone was man enough to step up and challenge him to a a, a man-on-man fight, and he killed him, well, he's the king now. Um, but, and why not? So the question is, and this is why I say it's the foundation of property and morality. I do believe that our concept of morality, that what it's basically been is the embodiment of our recognition as a species, that this is not a very smart way for us to move forward because every single time we have these violent conflicts, we really risk eliminating some of the most valuable members of our community. So whether it's the sort of fighter, king-like, uh, super big, masculine alpha male, that's one guy. But what about the individuals who, who are able to deliver in other ways, perhaps intellectually, perhaps emotionally, the artists, the ac- academic types, the scientists who aren't able to stand up to those individuals and they might just get killed as well. Well, we're losing them also. So over time, we start to develop these systems and whether it's ethical systems like religion, 
right, to where you have the divine right of kings. So it's like, okay, we've eliminated some violence there. Um, ethical systems of, of philosophy, ideas of, you know, d- democracy and republics. And th- that I think that we start to evolve and evolve. And what we're steadily trying to get away from is we're trying to get away from and evolve and transcend the claim conflict behavior and resolution strategy that nature gave us, which is violence. But it's always underneath. And I think that we've now reached a point. So it's a technology. I do believe that I do believe morality is a technology. And I believe that morality is, as I said, it evolves to settle property, whether that's in the abstract or physical, property disputes in a nonviolent manner. And I think that we've reached a point now with the other technologies that we have that are complementary to that, the blockchain being, I think, one of the most important of all times, uh, and it may be the one that takes this thing over the over the edge. Rick Falkvinger, last year, I saw him speak uh, down in Acapulco. He likened it to the the printing press. I don't think he's wrong. I think it's on that level, uh, and we haven't we haven't fully realized it yet, but. That fundamentally what we've reached now is we've reached a point where I think we can get rid of that violence, which is the state, which is kind of the last vestige. I don't know what that means for our species, but it certainly means that we're going to be able to evolve, um, I think, to, to, to something that we can't even imagine. I agree with you. And I agree with the printing press analogy. And now we're not spreading the literacy to the masses. It's spreading the idea that you can print your own currency. Every single person can print their own currency. What does that mean? And what will it look like is uh, some pretty heady uh, ideas to explore. But let's get to the to the heart of this self ownership. What what is self ownership? What does that mean? So in in looking at the idea of property, I needed to find a foundation uh, for saying what can be owned, what can't be owned. Where does ownership start? I needed to find that sort of genesis. And we, I needed to take it back. So I, I do think that if we're going to use the idea, which, which is there, it's foundational, it's in our culture, if we're going to use the sort of Lockean idea of uh, original appropriation, the idea that property comes from taking a natural resource, you mix your labor with it, uh, and there you go. There's the, there's the property and now it's yours because it was your labor. And I think that we we know, and especially as libertarians, when we use the term self-ownership, I think most people are talking about the idea of you own your own body. And much of this is is was put into our culture by sort of the proto-libertarian movement that was the abolition movement, uh, and that no other human being can be owned. Now, they were coming at it from a religious standpoint, and they sort of stopped it at that point but it, it was it was useful they didn't dig further back into the atom going further back obviously it's the idea that you own your labor uh, and that's the reason why you own this property the owner of the labor nobody owned the natural resource there it is going back further though you know i i was i, I wanted to reach a point where even socialists and communists would have to agree at least with the first principle. And what I came upon is, if we're going to talk, we need to to draw a boundary around the individual for sure. And I I believe that where that boundary is, that is the place that, what it's not absolute truth, but we act as though it is, and that is that pain is real. Pain is real. So you may have somebody who says, no, no, it's just it's it's a construct in the brain. It's just neurons firing. There's no fundamental like axiom of pain. It's different between people. And I say, okay, well then, lay out your hand. I'm gonna take a hammer and I'm gonna whack the shit out of your hand, uh, and no pain, right? So no, although we might be able to say it, we can't act. We can't act that out. We can't not and live in the world, right? So. In order to live in the world, we, ha- we have to acknowledge our suffering, and we acknowledge that only we can feel our suffering. We can certainly have sympathy for another person or empathy for another person, but if I whack my hand with a hammer, I'm the only one who's going to feel that. So I'm the owner of my suffering, my pain. 
I'm the owner of my thoughts and sensations, which are related to that pain. And it's the direction of thoughts and sensations that are labor. So that, that, that's where it, it draws down to that at this first atomic level, that there is a, a boundary drawn around the individual and that all ideas of ownership flow from that. So that is the self. Um, and, I, and I think that it's a pretty unassailable position. Uh, I, you, you can assail the idea that, that pain doesn't exist or that other people feel it, but I think that, that most people would, would find that simply silly. So the ind- only an individual can labor. Only an individual can create property in that case. And then only two individuals with property can trade with one another. The first quarter of my book is really a, a, a refutation of the collectivist ideals that are going around because so much of our society is based on the idea that, the co- that one, a collective exists uh, as anything more than a, a figment of the imagination, and two, that it could actually own something, like that a state, a government, could actually own a piece of property that was taken from you or I, even though that piece of property was taken from you or I by an individual and will end up being utilized by an individual, will end up being directed from place to place by an individual. So, yeah, at the, at the core and the idea behind this is that if we're going to lay out a foundation for a peaceful um, conflict resolution, a peaceful private property order, which is what I think that we can move to, that it is the acknowledgement of this chain of ownership that moves through the individual because of our ownership of our thoughts, our feelings, and fundamentally our ownership of our own suffering. And I think that if, on the positive side, it's, it's that we can recognize that that is the, the basis of it, recognize that it is the suffering of other individuals that, uh, that is driving us all, and, uh, and to seek to eliminate as much of that suffering as we possibly can. All right, well, I, I think that's fairly clear. Um, and you say it's unassailable, so let me assault it, and we'll see what, what occurs here. Let's do it. Um, I, I think I understand, and I, I agree with the concept, or what this concept is trying to trying to impart, and I agree with the implications of this concept, but I think I disagree with the way that it's being framed, and I'm not sure if this is just semantics, or if there's something deeper philosophical going on here, so let's explore that. Um, my, my question is about self-ownership, the idea that ownership is the is the right way of framing this, that perhaps this is a mistaken metaphor, because ownership, A, implies that there is an object that is being owned. There is a property claim to an object. And so there must be a difference between the subject that is making that property claim and the object that is being claimed. And secondly, the idea that you own, do you own your labor or do you own the fruits of your labor? Again, is the ownership, is the, the property claim is to the object, not to the thing that is being done to create that object. And again, I agree with the implication that, yes, there is a self that does have control over what is being done. But perhaps one of the ways that the ownership analogy, if that's what this is, goes astray, is that it implies that there is a property claim that can be transferred. So if there is a, if I, if I self-own, then yes, I can transfer that ownership to something else. I can sell myself into slavery, for example. I don't agree with the implications of that um, aspect of this. So where am I going wrong? Excellent. Yes, I don't agree with the implications of that either. And, and so I, I, I deal with it. The first thing that I would say is, um, and, and this, is a, this is one, I think, of the, this is where it gets a bit esoteric, if you, if you will. But the... If we're talking about physical objects, physical objects and ourselves, our but also our thoughts, also our sensations, these are the, the difference between a physical object and um, you know a, a radio wave, a thought. These are their phenomena within the 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 realm. We are putting these boundaries in terms of this is a physical object, this is not a physical object. What I had to come up with were prerequisites for ownership itself. And then to track it back into the idea of, are these other phenomena? And as you say, that is, a, that is an excellent point, that 
our thoughts, our our feelings, these are not material. These are not material, but do they fit within the principle of ownership? So the prerequisites for ownership that I lay out and, and that I think are relatively self-evident, and I'll go sort of top, top down. First is uh, that you have to have the capability to defend. That doesn't mean that you that you have to, let's say if you have a piece of land that you have to be able to defend it, and if you are unable to defend it, then it ceases to be your property. But you have to have the capability to, it has to be within the realm of physical capability that you can prevent another individual from interacting with said property that you own. Uh, so for instance, if I make a claim to you know, some exoplanet 57 light years away, it's a moot point that I've made that claim in uh, in any practical terms because there's I simply have no capability to defend it. The reason I don't, and I'll go down, this is the sort of second, these could go in either direction. Second one is, and it flows from that, the ability to interact. So I, I need to have the ability to interact with whatever it is that I'm making an ownership claim to. Uh, the third thing is that I need to have the knowledge of that it exists. That one is completely self-evident, right? I can't make a claim on something that I don't have knowledge of existence. So, you know, we could talk about this camera sitting here in front of me. Clearly, it, that meets all of those prerequisites in terms of me, can I own it with those principles? So I have the capability to defend it. I can put, a, put it in a lockbox. I can put it in a safe. I can hide it away. I can hold it in my hand. I certainly have the ability to interact with it. We see that because I'm, I'm doing it right now. And... Uh, I know that it exists. Now, if there's a claim conflict, certainly because it's an ownable thing, it could be ownable by someone else that walked in and they could say, well, yes, they also have the capability to defend it. They uh, have the ability to interact with it and they know that it exists. Now we have to see whose claim is valid. And we usually would do that through the arbitration method that's the sort of tried and true through the millennia is some system of provenance, some system of title where we trace it back to even the parts where we trace it back to original appropriation. Okay. Oh, James is the one who made that camera. So it's James's. he has a record of it. We know that he created it. Now, when we go to our, our labor, labor is labor. Labor is really a shorthand for directed thought and action. So, and directed thought and sensation, the, the movements of our body. And so when we, when we deal with it in that way, we say, well, if we take my thoughts as a phenomena, as a, as a phenomenon, we say, well, do I know that my thoughts exist? Do I know that my sensations exist? Well, clearly I do. Uh, do I have the ability to interact with those thoughts can I think those thoughts and feel those feelings? Well, clearly I do. Do I capability to defend is a little bit different. It's because no one, since no one else can actually think my thoughts or feel my feelings, that one's handled outright. So in terms of the, the principle of ownership and the prerequisites of ownership, I'm the only one that can lay claim to my thoughts. I'm the only one that can lay claim to my uh, sensations. And in terms of selling myself into slavery, I may be able to, I may be able to lease my body to someone for a period of time, um, but they will never be able to have ownership of the living me. Certainly not my thoughts, certainly not my feelings. We know that they can't do that. But, and this is what's interesting, and, and uh, one of the essays in the book is called To Claim a Corpse, um, is the idea that when I die, something happens that we know and we embody in, in our whole being across every culture, uh, even the cultures that, that are totally against the idea of slavery and someone being able to own somebody else. When I die, my body will be able to become property that my family can take, uh, that maybe it'll first be in the hospital, and then my family has to, to sign it out and do all of that. So we do understand that, yeah, the physical body, at the moment that something leaves, 
And I say, this is when it starts to get esoteric, but we do embody this. Uh, everyone in our species, we do embody this. And this is where, th this is where the, the sort of religious implications or the spiritual implications come in of, of what is the self and who is the subject really who owns the self? Uh, because I believe that that we do know and we do have some feeling that, yeah, when I die, uh, something has changed fundamentally in this thing. Something has left the vessel and is no longer the owner. Uh, and now my body can be owned. But as long as that thing is here claiming ownership of my body, whatever that thing is, and I, and I never make any claims, uh, in fact, I call it a mystery, uh, whatever that thing is, we do recognize. We do recognize it, and we do we do embody that. So, I mean, I I don't, I don't know if I've answered every single part of the of the criticism there, but that's that's certainly the the way that it's fleshed out in the book. Well, I I certainly yes, I I see and understand that point about the body. That is a, a fascinating part of this. When you die, and uh, your family takes custody of the the body, and, and it is interesting. But then there are certain rules about what you can or cannot do with that body. You can't just you know put sure. a dead body in a dumpster because you know sure. that would. But and there's a government that that in a way but has some claim still over that body. But you can body. burn it, you can bury it, you can shoot it into space, right? You can These do a lot of things. are all things that you can't do with a living human being without their permission. Yes. Um, but I think, again, I still have problems with the idea that you own your thoughts um, for a couple of different reasons. One of which is that it obviously, depending how it's fleshed out, could very easily give rise to the idea of intellectual property, which I think does not exist and is a, a false nomer. But perhaps more fundamentally and more philosophically, uh, again, I think the ownership principle as it applies to thoughts, well, even just using your, your, your rubric for how we define the different, uh, you know, layers of, of ownership and how we determine if something can be owned, um, that top level seems vulnerable to me. The idea that you can, you can defend your thoughts, especially now, maybe that's been true for the entirety of human history, but <laughs> given the future, we already are getting to the point where brain scan technology is getting to the point where they can start to read your thoughts, and there are a number of verifiable things that they're doing now that are getting creepy about being able to visualize and, and create images of thoughts that you're having, crazy stuff like that. But going forward from here, we already know that by stimulating certain regions of the brain, you can provoke certain thoughts, you can provoke certain emotions or feelings. And how much more refined can that technique get? Can they actually start implanting thoughts, feelings, and memories inside of you? What does that mean about your ability to defend your, your thoughts and your feelings? And if that level of the order is breached, then doesn't that mean that this is not ownership, an ownership claim? I think that's a that is a very important question. Intellectual property is actually one of those things that I deal with in the book specifically as being unownable. Um, and uh, also I, I talk about electromagnetic spectrum as being one of the other as two things that the state claims ownership of, by the way, which is a very, very important. So the first thing that we need to do, and it's in the context of the intellectual property, is to separate the idea of my thoughts and communicated ideas. So uh, I may be thinking my thoughts and I may communicate an idea or a thought to you. Uh, now you're thinking the thought, you're feeling sensations. Those are now your thoughts and your sensations. The, the idea once communicated no longer becomes my property because I don't have the capability to stop you from thinking it. I don't have the capability to defend it to stop you from interacting with an idea once I've exposed it, which is basically the embodied idea of a patent. It's the reason why patents are formed in the way that they are. The idea is you will make this public and we, the state, will violently coerce all the rest of the people that they will not use this idea because it is impossible to nonviolently prevent them from using an idea once it enters into their head, right? Or to draw, excuse me, to draw your logo once they've seen that logo, right? Same thing goes for electromagnetic spectrum, uh, which it's it's been something, you know, I, I have a background in radio and I ran for a couple of years a pirate radio station in, in LA that reached all of Los Angeles County. And I've always found it amazing that that people are so... Uh, ready to say that a, a license from the FCC for a particular uh, 
say, FM station is legitimate when they don't understand that that same electromagnetic spectrum is also where the visible light spectrum is with the colors. It's, it's literally the equivalent of the FCC saying that they have a right to stop everyone from being able to ever use the color blue, uh, to ever paint their house uh, the color blue because, or a particular color blue because that has been completely uh, licensed to some party in some particular area. So doing the pirate radio station, what I know is that if I've got a transmitter, there is no way for anyone to prevent me from broadcasting. What they can do is they can punitively come in and, uh, and arrest me. They can, they can chop down the, the transmitter pole or, or any of those things. And it's one of the ways that you know when you're dealing with something that is actually unownable because the only recourse that you have is simply violence. Uh, part of ownership and why I say it's the foundation of, of morality is that it is the concept of ownership that is, that is there. And the reason why we have a concept of ownership is so that we don't just have to go to, uh, we don't just have to go to might makes right. So, uh, so that was the, that was the, uh, the first part. What was the, what was the second part now? I do not recall. <laughs> what was I talking oh. about? Uh, oh, the, well, uh, the ownership of thoughts. Um. Yes. So, so it, it is, the, the idea of owning thoughts, you were asking about them being able to put thoughts oh, into right, your yes. head. Yes. And then at that point, is it yours? I mean, this is a very, this is a very difficult, uh, this is a very difficult question. I, I, I it, the, because the question becomes, I think at that point, if they, if a situation was there that there was a take technology that could, I guess we're talking about hijack the human brain, for instance, and make a human being, let's say, labor and create something. And their will is no longer there. I think that at that point, we are starting to get into the idea of the claiming of a corpse. Um, it's, it's super dystopian. Um, it's Certainly, I, I, I do think it's certainly immoral to, uh, to have that behavior, but I must admit that under this framework, I think an argument could certainly be made by the person who is uh, sort of the puppet master in that case that – that yes, that, that they is own their, that, that because is their they are property. putting those thoughts or ashes into so. someone. I think I think it could be made. Yeah, and I think it's because, as you tease out in the book, the uh, the concept of self is this unknowable thing mm -hmm. that exists beyond the realm of rational understanding. It is the I. It is it is beyond our ability to con comprehend. But the presumably in that situation, the dystopian situation, no, 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 there is no magical, mystical self-I. There is only you, the robot, the, the human robot, and we can program you to do this. And if that is it, true... I think, in some ways, I think in some ways it's a call to action, James, really. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because we are, I, I think we are doing this to ourselves. I, I had a, a conversation, you know, without that level of technology. I had a, a conversation with a, a friend of mine, actually, just uh, just last night. We were we were having dinner and talking about, you know, I, I had asked her. I said, "Have you visited?" Because I only just did this recently. I said, "Have you visited the front page of Twitter when you're not logged in?" And have you scrolled down? Have you done this? I haven't. Do it, James. Do it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to trip you out. I went through and I said, this is nothing but noise. There's zero signal here. Zero. If, I, if this was my point of entry to plugging in, and if this is all the information that I had, metaphorically, I would say, I'm at that point that you're talking about, James. And I think that... That is perhaps one of the reasons why we are seeing this rise of collectivism, this acceptance of, of socialism and a desire for, for obedience to the state is because all that's being fed in is this noise that is completely preventing any sort of real agency. And I think that, you know, you and I are people who are, are cutting through with signal. And while people do – 
you know, they respond and they respond when they respond, they really latch on because there's so little signal that's traveling through and the rest of it is just all noise. So, you know, it's, I mean, the movie Idiocracy was quite prophetic, I think. And, and so, you know, you're talking about a situation where they're, they're putting actual electrodes in and, and controlling people's thoughts. But I have to tell you, I think in many ways we're already there. Yeah, it can be programmed in in less uh, physical ways. Um, that's that, yeah, unfortunately, probably quite true. And perhaps the the real worry isn't that they are making robots into persons; it's that they are making persons into robots. There you go. And that's the way they're going to try to equalize it. So yes, I think that is something that we have to fundamentally resist. Um, let's approach this from a different perspective, a different critique, if you will. Um, Listeners of my well-read anarchist series will know that the one and only installment of that series so far has been Pierre Joseph Proudhon's uh, What is Property, the first self-declared anarchist, dealing with the question directly head-on, what is property? And I think one of the points that he makes there, one of the fundamental points that I think is worth exploring is the idea of a distinction between property and possession, rightful possession. Mm -hmm. You can have rightful possession of, say, a vineyard. You put the fence around it, you planted it, you grew it, you you have the grapes. The grapes are yours to possess because you grew them. But property, the idea of using that as the way of, of describing that is wrong because you don't own that land which entitles you to pass it on to your children and their children and children mm-hmm. forever. And you have parceled out that part of the earth as yours for all of you know, the rest of human history, that's the wrong way of doing it because ultimately that will create serfs and mm-hmm. rulers, if you will, in one form or another. And of course, if we extend that out, not just a vineyard, but throughout everything, then we get this incredible power um, structure that will enforce itself. Um, so if we talk about rightful possession, yes, you put in the work, you possess the grapes, but you don't own the earth that created the grapes. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, this this term "rightful" is very very important, and the 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 fact that we use it. If we go back to our our example of the two rams, uh, the, the who are who are gonna who are about to butt heads, who meet each other, and if people have never seen what this looks like, one I think one of the, go on YouTube, look up uh, rams fighting or whatever. One of the most interesting things about that that's that's noteworthy is the look they get in their eyes is really it's just it's crazy. It's a berserker look. But between those two. Even if one was sitting on that property, at the moment that they meet each other and they're about to go head to head, there is no idea of rightful owner. It's not that this particular ram is defending this territory because, hey, I'm the rightful owner of this territory. At that moment, they go head to head as equals because whoever is going to win is going to be the rightful owner. The only reason that we have this notion or this concept of rightful owner is because we're, we've embodied an idea that, hey, we don't want to do that, that it's going to be much better for us to create some sort of a, a, a normative process, some sort of cultural norm whereby the community can get behind and say, oh, no, you can't just go take that because this guy's the rightful owner. Now, it makes a lot of sense that you say, I'm the rightful owner here in rightful possession. I also, uh, you know, observe your rightful ownership of the thing next door and the guy next door and the guy next door so that if somebody comes along to usurp one of our properties, we defend you. And it's a mutually beneficial It's game theory. It makes a whole lot of sense that, that we would do this. But in t- so when I when I'm using um, when I'm, I'm using it's definitely different than than Proudhon and where he was at the. When I use property, I'm using property as, in, in the way that the Austrians are, that which is owned. Um, so that which is owned, and what makes it owned, what makes it owned is a claim. That someone is making a claim to it. That, and that's, that's actually all that it takes for something to be owned, if you think about it. Is, that's the, that is the fundamental prerequisite of ownership, is that someone is claiming it. So... What makes someone the rightful owner? Whether whether this is the idea of rightful possession or whether this – what it is that we have embodied is that there is what I call claim exclusivity. Right. That only yes. one person yes. 
who out of, who rightfully out has of the, the claim to out that. of everyone. Well, I think the more so. I guess the distinction then is that yes, you have a rightful property claim to the grapes because you created the you made the vineyard, you, you grew the sure. grapes. They are your grapes, but you don't own the earth that created the grapes, and that is an important distinction right. because the concept that you have proper land property claim to the earth itself means that you can do whatever you want. You can destroy it so that right. no human will ever be able to use it again. You can do anything you want with it because you have property claim to it. But the idea here is, no, you don't have a claim to the earth. You have the claim to the grapes that you grew from the earth. There's a big difference there. Well, you, if the, if the grapes are growing out of the earth, uh, I think what you have is you have it. I actually had a discussion about uh, this exact thing the other day where someone was saying, well, what if I had made a claim to an entire, I, I believe that he was, he was going off of a, a, a thought uh, puzzle that sort of Rothbard had laid out. And he said, well, what if there was an island the size of Malta? Could I just claim, and I'm the first one there, could I just claim it? And then if I had seen it all from the top of a mountain, sort of using my prerequisites, if I had seen it all, I knew it was there, it's possible for me to defend it. But then a year later, I walked to the other side of the island and someone has fenced off three acres and built a house and I didn't know. Is he trespassing on my land? And I said to him, well, first off, we know that you cannot make a claim to the house and you cannot make a claim to the fence for sure. And if he's fenced it all the way around, he certainly has every means to, that you can't touch that fence as his property and you certainly can't enter his house. So I think that this is what we're starting to, to get at, James, with the idea of the land as versus um, – the actual physical, perhaps, structures on the land, the products that come from the land. And I think that there is a great argument to be made using this, the sort of same rubric that, that I've laid out and, and seeing how the state interacts vis-a-vis -vis land is that generally the only uh, recourse that they have when any of that is questioned is violence. Uh, and in the case of this guy who showed up and the guy was there with the house and the fence, you see that the only settlement for the land, not the fence, not the house, he even admitted, yeah, I don't have a right to that. I don't have a right to the house or the fence, but the land. The only, if, the, if your only recourse is violence, then this is starting to reach a point where Clearly, uh, this might be something that cannot actually be owned. I, I, there's a there's a huge question there. It's not. I think that that it definitely needs uh, some ex some expansion in that regard uh, for things like land, for things like certainly waterways, uh, water moving through uh, claimed property, uh, and the air, uh, airspace. Uh, you know, I think all of these things potentially, potentially are unownable. Um, certainly the moving water, the air, land, I mean, you know, if you, if you have things growing out of it, if you've built a structure on top of it, it's going to be very hard for, for someone to not say that functionally uh, you don't also have possession of the land underneath. Possession, as opposed right. to property ownership. Again, I just, I think I have a, a problem with that because the implication, of course, is you can destroy it, you can do whatever it is, you can make it completely uninhabitable for the rest of human history, which does not seem just in some way. I think there's an argument to be, there's an argument to be made there, James, about the, about the land. I think that there is an argument to be made. Um, it's a difficult, it's a difficult one because when you, when you pull land up and you create something out of that land, it certainly does become your property. And I think that very few people, uh, disagree with that. I, I, I personally have a problem with, um, you know, I, I want to, I want to have something more tangible to sort of, to hold on to, as opposed to my aesthetic preference for the land being pristine for future generations. Um, because again, what is pristine and what is not pristine. And the, uh, as Thomas Sowell says, there's no solutions, only trade-offs, you know, in sort of destroying that land or in ravaging that land, was there some economic outcome that made some percentage of the population that was better for them, uh, you know, for, for some future generation? It's hard to make those trade-offs. So in, in sort of examining how deep does this go, 
you know, I, I want something more tangible to hold on to. I don't go, I don't go into that, that specific, um, that specific area in the book, but I, that is one that I think an entire field of study could, uh, could start to peel apart. And it's a tough one. Yeah. There's a, I mean, there is a lot to get into there and I've been mining that, that territory for years and still don't feel that I've hit bedrock. Um, I could throw more curveballs out there because there's more to say on some of these really important issues. Uh, the idea of Lockean right uh, property ownership being the, the the sort of underlying mechanism here, the idea that you mix your labor with something and it becomes your... Oh. Um, that has been contested by even by people like Stefan Kinsella, who of course is an Austro-anarchist, uh, 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 an Austro libertarian legal theorist who specializes in intellectual property. But he, for example, has an episode of uh, Kinsella on Liberty, Locke's big mistake, how the labor theory of property ruined political theory that I think is worth delving into. I think there's also practical considerations. We talk about, well, somebody, whoever has the first um, the, the first best claim to a piece of property will become the rightful owner, but I'm not sure that's either, either practical or even, even theoretically possible. I mean, I, 12 generations ago, someone was killed and this land was stolen from them. So what do we do with that now? Um, can we go back and find who that person was 12 generations ago and then all of his descendants and then apportion that property claim out to all of the descendants that came from? I mean, again, I'm not sure that's workable. Um, so there's there's some very important things there. But we've already been at this an hour <laughs> and we've already covered so much. So perhaps we'll save that for a future conversation. Sure, but sure, I sure. did want to touch on another important concept that you bring up at the very end of the book here, which is crypto savage. What does that Indeed. mean? So this is as I as I was as I was putting this book together at the same time you know I've been uh, doing my show for the last year and observing a a movement a, the the people who were were reaching out to me were not exactly who I expected uh, they were coming from all different sides definitely. Uh, with a message of of individual liberty, but I saw something there that I really felt was there, that there was a culture coalescing around some some key ideas and certainly some skepticism of the state and a, a reaction to maybe it's maybe it's like post postmodernism. I don't know, but I was I was seeing people who were starting to embrace what I think most people might call traditional values, but who at the same time were, were definitely skeptical of how those traditional values have been playing out in the society. Very, very strange. And so um, much like with the community around cryptocurrency, I saw that, okay, here's this, this undercurrent of a global culture that's happening, but that is relatively invisible to the mother culture. And in past times in history, cultures have been changed by the introduction of the savage coming in, uh, whether that's through the exploration of people going out, seeing new cultures and coming back, uh, whether that's that's been just just neighbors that start to clash with each other over time as their, their sort of territories expand and, and their cultures mix. We don't really have that anymore. We have a global culture. It's not like the, there's going to be some new exploration, some unknown culture that's that's going to be on par with us in some way, either artistically or uh, aesthetically, culinary-wise, technology-wise, whatever, that's going to really add to us. But this culture bubbling up, I think, does represent the – it has enough momentum and enough energy uh, that it can change the mother culture in the way that interacting with a savage culture in the past has. And so, uh, of course, crypto meaning hidden, savage coming from sauvage, the, the, the wilds, the, the forest. This is what I believe is, the, is what is going to change the culture. It's going to be the interaction with these crypto savages. And I think when we talk about the, that signal-to-noise ratio, I think what that signal is is I think that signal is the culture of crypto savagery. And I think you know, you've been way out in front of it and, and have obviously been building a, a, a giant wake behind you and others as well. And, you know, we are aligned on so many things. Um, and even, you know, us having this discussion now, we're trying to hash this new culture out. We're trying to ha hash some things out that could, that in practical terms can actually 
be the foundation of something new that can, that can make that change. And I think it's it's real, it's palpable, and it's yeah, here. I agree. I mean, it's it's it is a, a such an an effective uh, way of putting it because, of course, we all feel that we are at the age of the American Empire, and of course, mm-hmm. the the end of the Roman Empire was the barbarians at the gates and the barbarians invading mm-hmm. Rome. Well, we have the barbarians who are about to invade the, uh, the the refuse of the old American order, and what will that look like? What will that be? Well, we are we are the people who can shape that, and it, you know, of course, we're programmed to think of savages and barbarians as being inferior and whatever. No, we're the technologically superior. We're on the cutting edge. Right. We understand what's coming. Right. You guys don't yet, but we're trying That's to impart right. that to you. So I think I think it's a very powerful way of putting it, and of course. The crypto savages out there can purchase their own copy of self-ownership with their cryptocurrency. Tell us, uh, again, how people can actually get their hands on a copy of this. They can go to vinarmani.com. It's right there. It's even easier. You can go to selfownership.me, and you can get it there. I take, I think on, on the book, I take six or seven cryptocurrencies, so all of the big ones. Uh, so if you don't want to pay those high BTC fees, you can pay uh, in Litecoin or Dash or, or Bitcoin Cash, uh, and you can get the book. You can get the audiobook and digital PDF copy. You can get all three. Every book is signed. So, uh, so yeah, you're gonna get you're you're gonna get a, a very personalized piece. And I love to hear from people. So, uh, there's plenty of space there to to tell tell me your story and what you want put on the book, or or send me an email. I, I love to hear from people. I love to hear people's thoughts. It just helps for me to expand my own sort of experience in this. Excellent. Well, it is it is genuinely a good book. Um, you have definitely you. put some thought into these issues, so I do appreciate that, and I think it's worth checking out for people who are interested in exploring the real meaning of what it is we're doing and what are we actually working towards and why are we here and all of this. Some big, heady, philosophical conversation. Uh, just the kind of conversation I love. Vin Armani, thank Great. you for making it possible today. Oh, thank you, James. It's been an honor. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.